Good morning. Has everybody taken advantage of the leftover coffee in the back? <laughs> we all caffeinated? Um, so my name is Christine Hutchison-Jones. I am the Administrative Director of the Petrie Flom Center for Health Law Policy, Biotechnology, and Bioethics at Harvard Law School. And as you may guess by both the title and the institution, I am not a working academic in my field. I have a PhD in American Religious History from Boston University. Uh, so our panel today is going to be focused specifically on what folks can do if they find, for whatever reason, ranging from job market to personal predilections, I don't want to go into the academy, and I have all of this graduate training. What do I do with that? So our panel today, I'm really excited, is a diverse group. Last year, we had our first panel in the Applied Religious Studies Working Group, and it was focused on people like me who have ended up in very explicitly non-academic careers. And we've got a few of those folks here today, um, although everybody kind of blends their academic and scholarly work into the work they're doing. But we've also got a couple of PhD candidates who have agreed to join us in the conversation this year who are still thinking about the academic market but are also exploring possibilities beyond the academic market, again, for various reasons. And so I really hope we're going to have an open conversation about both how those of us who are outside of the academy already have ended up there and why, and also why PhD candidates are starting to explore those options and what all of us have found uh, in terms of available resources and lack of available resources and where our institutions and, and the AAR and organizations like it can do better to support people as they explore careers beyond the academy. So thank you for joining us. Um, I'm not going to give full introductions of our panelists. Uh, first of all, that would take up our entire two and a half hours because they're such an accomplished group. So I'm going to leave it to them to sort of pull out the parts of their biographies that they think are really relevant to this discussion. I'll just give you a um, brief name institution and uh, work they're doing. Uh, sitting next to me is Robert Puckett, who many of you may know. Robert graduated from BU, like me, and uh, has ended up as the director of meetings for AAR. So be nice to him if you ever <laughs> want to do anything at AAR beyond sitting in this room. He's your guy. Um, next to him is Andrew Henry, who's currently a PhD candidate in, it's not religious and theological studies anymore at no, BU, is it? Okay, the graduate division of religious studies at Boston University. On his other side is Jana Reese, who is a scholar of Mormonism, among many other things, and is a self-employed writer, editor, and general public intellectual, I think it's fair to say. <laughs> On her other side is Peter Manso, who's worn far too many hats for me to list. But right now, Peter is, let me get this right, the new Lilly Endowment Curator of American Religious History at the National Museum of American History. So we're excited to hear from Peter the work that he's going to be doing going forward in that new position with the Smithsonian Institute. Um, who's on your other side, Peter? I can't see. Natasha. Uh, Natasha Michaels is a PhD candidate in religious studies at the University of Virginia. And on the very end is Jay Sean Landris, got it, <laughs> who is both the commissioner of the Quality and Productivity Commission in the County of Los Angeles and commissioner and chair of social service, the Social Services Commission in the city of Santa Monica. So this is our group, and I, again, just want this to be a very open conversation. We're going to talk amongst ourselves up front for about 60 minutes, and then I want to open it up to Q&A. And I will say now, we're recording this. It will be available as a podcast via the AAR's website after the fact. 
So please ask smart and interesting questions. Uh, and no question is too small. And I will be getting up and bringing around a microphone when we get to Q&A. So please just wait for me to get to you with a microphone when you have questions. Um, so folks, uh, let's start with the basics. Why did you go to graduate school in religious and theological studies? And what led you to start exploring options beyond the traditional teaching and research academic path? I was very naive. <laughs> uh, I graduated with a BA from Dartmouth College and double major in classics and religion. Couldn't think of anything else to do. Loved you know, the, the life of scholarship and, as I said, naively thought that all those baby boomers are going to be retiring by the time I get out of grad school, right? No, no, it didn't happen. Um, so that led me to do a master's program at Vanderbilt and then to the doctoral program at BU. Um, and I really enjoyed uh, doing the, as a teaching assistant at BU and then due to some personal circumstances as I was, after I finished up my coursework, I ended up moving back to Georgia to be closer to my family. Took an adjunct job working at Georgia Perimeter College, um, a small, not small, it's actually a very large uh, group of community colleges uh, in the metro Atlanta area. And there were some challenges there. Uh, while I love teaching, sometimes the students were really unprepared, had numerous cases of plagiarism to deal with, and just dealing with the administration and the frankly shitty life of being an adjunct. Um, I don't wanna candy coat that because that that's really terrible, and that's another thing that the AR is trying to, to really work about. Um, so dealing with all of that, I had an opportunity that came, came to me. My predecessor as director of meetings for the AAR, Aislinn Jones, uh, was a friend and said to me, we've got this internship available at the AAR working on the Religion and Media Project, which is being paid for by the Pew Research Center, why don't you apply for that? And I said, sure, <laughs> that sounds good, just to supplement what I was getting as, a, as an adjunct. And I really enjoyed that work, um, loved the people at the AAR, stayed on there uh, in a part-time role, just doing some admin work, um, then became the assistant director of meetings, and then in 2008, Aislinn decided that she didn't want to be director of meetings anymore. She wanted to transition into communications and marketing, and so I took over that role. Uh, been doing that ever since, and it's, it's an interesting job. <laughs> and I use my skills from graduate school every single day in, in doing that job, and I'll talk a little bit more about that later. Um, but that's just the, the quick biography, so I'll pass this on. One quick interjection. We're only being audio recorded, guys, so if you would just identify yourself at least by first name before you speak, I think that might be helpful to people who listen afterwards. I guess I'll go next. Uh, my name is Andrew Henry. I'm a PhD student at Boston University, fifth year, currently writing my dissertation. Uh, and I guess I'm still possibly naive. You know, I went into this, uh, you know, gunning for the eventual tenured track position. Um, I was obsessed with ancient history. I worked in the Penn Museum of Archaeology when I lived in Philadelphia. 
Uh, and as I started my graduate studies, there's, there's nothing more demoralizing than being on a career path that you think ends in a cliff. It will eventually <coughs> end in gunning for the tenure position and it doesn't materialize. So sometime around my third year, I started casting about for other paths that I can get around that cliff just in case I go off it and not get the tenure position. Uh, so I was curating all, all sorts of plan Bs. You know, I was interested in digital humanities, so I started going to, going to digital humanities conferences to try to pick up some sort of technological skill. Uh, I actually started a YouTube channel where I was putting educational content about religious studies online. And as my plan Bs, my side projects started blowing up, I started more seriously considering, like, should I go the route of digital humanities instead of a tenured position? So I'm currently at that crossroads. And it's a tough crossroads because you have to throw yourself wholeheartedly, wholeheartedly into writing your dissertation and publishing articles. Like, if you don't go all the way, you're not going to be competitive on the academic job market. Um, so it is, it's tough. I can't, I can't be um, splitting my, my time much longer. So that's where I'm at right now, and we'll see where it goes. I'm Jana Reese, and the story of how I got to graduate school is long and very boring. I will spare you <laughs> that story, but uh, I went to Columbia University for my doctorate, and this was in the late 1990s. Um, I, at that point, was studying American religious history. I had a wonderful, I had two wonderful advisors. And in my last year, I should say all through graduate school, I was surreptitiously supplementing my income by writing book reviews for Kirkus. If you've ever heard of that, um, Kirkus is one of these publications that wields a lot of, of undue influence in the publishing world by uh, putting its reviews up on Amazon and influencing consumer decisions about books. And I used to write those book reviews. I wrote about one a week the entire time I was in graduate school, which turned out to be not only terrific job experience, but a wonderful way to get free books, which, as every graduate student knows, is the whole point of school. <laughs> <laughs> and then what happened was in my last year of graduate school, when I was still you know, naive and happily thinking of tenure-track jobs, um, my junior advisor did not get tenure at Columbia. And to me and to just about everyone else who knew her, it was such an, a gross and obvious miscarriage of justice. We had a provost that came in that year saying that from now on it would be harder to get tenure at Columbia. And my junior advisor was the very first person to come up under the new provost for tenure and had done everything right as far as I could see in terms of scholarship, in terms of community service, and teaching. And I cannot tell you how, how bad a taste that experience left in my mouth, uh, that someone could devote six years, seven really, to single-mindedly pursuing this path, and that someone could do everything right and then have the rug pulled out at the last possible moment for something that was utterly beyond her control. Uh, thankfully, the rest of the job world does not work this way. That's the good news. Uh, other good news is that she is now doing incredibly and is the chair of religion at Princeton. So, or at least she was as of last year. Um, so it ended well for her too, but the whole experience was awful. 
and so not long after that happened, I got a call from a friend of mine who had been writing book reviews for Publishers Weekly while I was writing for Kirkus, and sometimes we would talk about those experiences and compare notes. And he said, uh, you know, there's this job that opened at Publishers Weekly where they're looking for a religion book review editor, and it involves some travel, but you can live anywhere. You don't have to live in New York. And we had recently moved to the hinterlands of rural Kentucky, so that seemed like a just a dream job. And I applied for it, and I got it, and I've never looked back. So I have not, I have done some, a little bit of adjuncting along the way, which I have loved, but you know, as you've said, it's not a, a financially tenable thing to do long term. Um, I went into the humanities in the first place so that I would never have to do math, but if you do stop and do that math, that is some very sad math. Don't do that math. Um, so, you know, I basically have had this career where I worked for Publishers Weekly for nine years, then I worked for a traditional publishing house as an acquisitions editor for four, and for the last four years I've been a freelance editor, and I also write books basically on the side. Don't ever think that you're going to make a living writing books. It's a very fun hobby, and it's a wonderful way to meet people and encounter new ideas, but yeah, the financially more bad math, so don't think about that. And that's where I am today. You know, I've had a tremendously satisfying career in publishing. It has been a great way to be close to religion scholarship and to be involved in helping to build careers for other people who are so interesting and, you know, really just are brilliant people who need help honing their ideas, which is the work that I love most. And uh, that's basically where I am now. I have a lot of freedom in my schedule, which is great. I'm going to Australia for three weeks in Christmas, which is great, which is something I wouldn't have been able to do at a traditional publishing house. And uh, I don't know, I would like to someday return to the classroom if it ever becomes more financially viable to do so, because I loved teaching, and I think I was good at teaching. But it's not really uh, something that you should build your whole career around hoping for when there are so many other great options out there. Take this one. Good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Peter Manceau, and I, I may be the outlier here, at least among those who have introduced themselves so far, in that uh, when I entered graduate school, I had no expectation of ever getting a job. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I had been, um, like Jenna, I had been working as a writer uh, for, for many years. I was a freelance book reviewer, magazine writer. I had published a couple of books. And I decided to enter graduate school, I believe in my early, mid-30s, for a couple of reasons. Uh, first, we had just moved, but because of my wife's work, uh, to Washington, D.C. Um, and up until that point, maybe the previous five or six years, I had just been working entirely in isolation as a freelance writer sitting at my desk. And I had decided it might be time to be part of a community. And it just so happened that at Georgetown University, where I ultimately uh, would return to to graduate school, uh, had just begun this new program in religious pluralism, uh, a program that encouraged all of its students to think about re uh, religion across traditions. And it just so happened that that had been the approach to most of my writing previous to that. So I decided it would be a good idea, knowing the types of writing I intended to do, the, the kinds of books I wanted to write, uh, to, to credentialize the work I had previously done and to give some more scholarly framework to the work that I would continue to do. So I expected that I would return to graduate school. I thought I would earn my, uh, my PhD in three years, I said at the time. <laughs> <laughs> That's how I convinced my wife it was a good idea. Um, 
It ended up taking six years, and it began to feel like a detour from what I had been doing. Uh, but along the way, I had a secret life as a writer, uh, much like Jana. And I also, an interesting change happened within me just by virtue of being with a part of this community of colleagues and, and other scholars. I discovered I liked it. I liked working with people. I liked being part of a, of a common cause, a common purpose. And so by the time I finished, I began to think that might be something I would like to do. Maybe it was time to leave my writing shed and, and get out in the world and, and work with people. And yet, because we lived where we lived, we lived in the Washington area, I was not going to go on the job market. I had no intention to do so. I had taught a little bit, but I did not love teaching. As, uh, I may be an outlier in that as well. Uh, but one thing I did love was public history. Uh, I had some background before I began my career as a writer at a cultural center that had hired me right after my undergraduate years as an exhibit designer and researcher. And I remembered that I really liked that work. I liked that mode of storytelling almost as much as I like the, the written form. And so being in Washington, I'm in, of course, I am in a city of museums. And I was able to begin a fellowship at the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History. Uh, originally, my work was going through their collections and finding out what they have in terms of religion objects. They have never, until right at this moment, had a dedicated religion curator. And so all of the objects related to religion were collected by those with religion as a, as a side interest. And so they weren't necessarily labeled as important religion object. So my work as a fellow at the museum for I think four or five months was to go through their collections, uh, beginning uh, by going through databases and then going off to the warehouses, which really looked like the last scene in Indiana Jones, <laughs> if you're wondering. Um, going through those places and trying to find the religion objects and making mm -hmm. sure that we knew they were there. Through that work, or at the end of that work, I, I then went away to continue writing. And just by coincidence, they had decided independently that they would like to have uh, an exhibit on religion in early America. But again, they had no dedicated curator, so they asked me to come back as a guest curator to put that exhibit together, which is a wonderful experience. And while I was doing that, they, the museum leadership, the leadership of the Smithsonian, realized that religion was a, a gap in its ways of approaching American history. And the only way to fill that would be to have a dedicated religion curator. So they began to wonder what that might look like, what the position might be. Uh, through a generous gift from the Lilly Endowment, they created this position uh, as well as launched a new initiative to consider religion in America um, in a very broad way. Uh, they had national search for the position, many, many qualified uh, applicants, uh, and I was fortunate to end up where I most hoped to be by that point. So going forward, I, I, much to my surprise, I am using my doctoral work uh, in ways that I never really expected I would be. Uh, I thought it would just be uh, a few letters to add to the end of my bio to give my books some more heft. <laughs> but now I'm, I'm realizing that the teaching that I really never felt comfortable doing in the classroom, I'm, I'm doing in a, in a different venue. I'm doing in the museum, uh, in the museum floor, I'm doing in public programs for museum goers, and trying to um, improve American understanding about religion um, in this very public space. Thank you. Hello, I'm Natasha Michaels. I'm a doctoral student at the University of Virginia in Chinese and Tibetan religions. Um, and I got into this, you just kind of fall into things and you start studying Tibetan language and then the next thing you know that you decide to go live in Tibet and then 
you kind of find yourself, well, what do I do now? I can't live in Tibet forever. And um, so I did a master's at the University of Chicago Divinity School. And then uh, when I was doing my master's, I really had this clear idea of I'm going to be a professor. And uh, when I got to my PhD program, I started to realize that I couldn't just assume that and that I shouldn't just assume that, that you had to develop your CV to be a professor and I'm continuing to do that, but that I also should be exploring other options because there is so much that you can do with a PhD. Um, and for those that know me, they know that I like uh, fancy expensive whiskeys and fancy expensive martinis, which you can't really afford on a graduate student budget. So I started to take side jobs um, to fund my fancy whiskey problem. <laughs> and uh, luckily my advisor, uh, Curtis Schaefer, constantly seemed to have well, little jobs for me to do. Can you help us organize this conference? Can you help us, um, you know, run this book, uh, this new book series? Can you help us redesign the website? And I would always say, well, of course I can, uh, and then figure out what I had to do. And along the way, I realized I was learning skills that I could apply in other situations. Um, and so one job would kind of lead to another, and the job designing the website led to a job managing a massive open online course. And through that, I kind of I realized that, that there was a lot that I could do with my PhD, and I think that we can talk more about this, but um, so much of the problem is that advisors don't mm -hmm. discuss with you options besides academia. They just assume that if you don't want to be a professor, something's wrong with you. Um, and so at this point, I'm actively pursuing uh, both options, and we'll kind of see what shakes out, but hopefully I'll keep having the money for my fancy whiskeys. <laughs> Good morning. I'm Sean Landris, and yes, we're still answering the first question. <laughs> well, we'll get to the second one really soon. So uh, how did I get into religious studies, into graduate school? I find myself actually back where I began, um, which is that uh, back after the season of 1992 and 93, I had been very active in presidential campaign politics. Um, and uh, just as in, uh, just as, you know, a few weeks ago, a Clinton had received more votes than any other candidate on the ballot. Um, and I went into, I went down, I was a, I was a undergrad at Columbia. Um, Jana and I share an advisor <laughs> and a mentor. <laughs> um, and, got very interested in um, very interested in, in, in national policy. I had testified on the Hill as a college student for student financial aid um, and had an internship at the White House uh, with the National Performance Review, which was this reinventing government project to try to figure out how to make um, government more efficient and more effective. And I loved this work because it was really creative. You could sort of, this is the old, um, Al Gore holding up a $400 toilet seat and saying, why is this toilet seat $400? Why is this wrench $600? We can, we can do better than that. It was just a different way of thinking about the way people relate to each other in government, the way people make decisions, um, what people value. And, um, and that internship was a really fascinating experience, except for the part where I was miserable by the end of it um, <laughs> because of the politics. Uh, because of the politics of the bureaucracy. And I had a, a wonderful um, supervisor there 
who was one of the first women actually to get an organizational psychology degree. And she'd gone on uh, to, do her, to do political work rather than academic work. And, um, and she said, you need an FU degree. <laughs> she said, you need a degree where whenever you're on this path, you can, if you are uncomfortable with what you're being asked to do, if you don't like the culture, you can say to the system, F you, and walk away and come back later. Because it gives you a grounding and a sense of authority that is independent of the work, of the process, of the politics that's going on. And that has stayed with me for the last 22 years, 23 years, um, because it, it Graduate school then became a grounding. I had been very interested in values. I'd been interested in the relationship between politics and, and values. Uh, and I ended up going back to finish my senior year, applied to graduate school, um, ended up at UC Santa Barbara um, very happily, and uh, which itself is a program, we, we use Ninian Smart's phrase of religion on the ground. It's a very grounded program, so I was, um, in, a, in a situation where I could be um, very much looking at religion as it is not only thought about, but practiced and used. Um, I had advisors like Clark Roof and Mark Jurgensmeyer who were not people who kept themselves in the ivory tower school of academia, but were actually out there in the world. Um, I had learned that, of course, first from Randy Balmer at Columbia. Um, and then I, I went on and, and did a social anthropology program at Oxford in the middle of that. Uh, and when I came back, um, I made a, an interesting choice. Um, some would say it was a mistake. I might say it was a mistake. I kind of started working before I got my degree. And it actually took me 19 years to finish my PhD from start to finish. Um, I started at Santa Barbara in the fall of 1994 and I got my PhD in the September of 2013. Wow. But along the way, <laughs> it may be a record. There was 19 year old wine at my defense. <laughs> Speaking of. <laughs> but along the way, I was publishing, I was presenting, I was running conferences, I, um, helped lead one think tank and found another. Uh, I had been to, I had been back to the White House, but this time as an expert in my field in faith-based social innovation. I was traveling all over the world. I had led major research projects on faith-based social innovation, um, on, on philanthropy uh, and American household charitable giving. I was doing all the things that one would do in this space. I just didn't have the degree. Um, Robert can tell you that this was a constant theme uh, at AAR meetings. But what was interesting to me about that was it was really clear. I had left academia without ever actually joining it, uh, without actually getting the union card. Um, and I always said to myself, I'm going to go back and finish when I can. And finally, there was a summer when my wife was able to take the kids um, to her parents for a while. I went off, thanks to Randy again, this time at Dartmouth, to spend like two and a half weeks actually finishing the thing. Um, but why I say where I'm back where I began is because I am now, uh, I work as a 
I mean, I'm still at the think tank that I co-founded, and so I think that's another interesting path, which is where you can imagine what it is that you are concerned about, how do you want to see it expressed in the world, can you bring truth and integrity to your research, but make sure that that research actually has an impact on the real world and is usable by people in the real world. To think that that, that path is, a, is a very much a viable option. But I also am now a commissioner on the LA County Quality and Productivity Commission, which actually does in innovation in government again. Um, and just the other week, I was sitting in a meeting of our productivity managers network. We are the largest county in the country, 10 million people, uh, 105,000 employees in the county. And um, we have a network of people who think creatively about government. And in a presentation, one of the leaders of that network uh, was talking about the ways in which people recognize one another. And um, you know, I may say I identify as such. You may say I identify as the other thing. And I realized as she was saying is that she was basically talking about something I'd written about in my dissertation um, in terms of inter what I call interstitial recognition. And so it was a very, um, it was very much a full circle moment because we imagine frequently these skills that we have uh, as being esoteric, the theories that we develop as relating only to our fields or to our, uh, or to our disciplines. But in fact, when we sit with them, when we listen to the way people respond to one another, um, we see that sometimes those ideas frequently, if, we, if we're honest with ourselves, actually are, are in the world. And our people think about them, they just don't use the language that we use. Right? So it's a question of vocabulary, it's a question of developing both the listening tools and the communications tools that enable us to build that bridge between um, how we approach what we're doing and what's happening in the world. Um, and uh, I can talk more about the details later. Thanks, everybody. <coughs> so can you hear me on this? OK, great. Um, so the thing that jumps out at me, I've got my nice little list of questions here, <laughs> and I'm immediately going to deviate from it. Because the thing that really jumped out at me immediately from what you're all saying is talking about the way the side gigs play into where you end up. You know, I think that um, my experience at least was, um, and Peter, you didn't point out that you're my role model. Peter was the department administrator in my graduate program when I started. And um, not long after he left, I was offered a position in part because uh, the university offered tuition remission, which meant that the department wouldn't have to pay for financial aid. Um, <laughs> but I saw it as, oh, hey, it's a paycheck and it's got benefits. That's how I saw it. And it turned into a wonderful relationship with a fantastic faculty member I never would have connected with otherwise because I wasn't working in his area. Um, I know lots about Dante, even though I'm American religion. <laughs> um, and it led to the career path I'm on now. Um, and that I'm, I'm hearing that refrain over and over here. It was sort of accidental. And we all take on these side gigs that we don't really tell anyone about necessarily because then you're worried that people might not take you seriously or might not think that you're committed. And then it's blossomed into these fantastic opportunities for several of us up here. And it sounds like it's headed in that direction for both Andrew and Natasha as well. So I'd like, I'd like you to talk a little bit more about, we, but we each ended up in different things. So was that accidental? Was it, did, did you just 
happened to stumble over writing for Kirkus, Jana? I mean, you know, so why, why did we end up with the things that we did or were we answering some interest or some need that maybe the Academy wasn't fulfilling for us? Can I jump in with a word? Please. I think it's entrepreneurship. I mean, all of you are in this room and you're not in other sessions which means that you're thinking creatively about how you do what you do, regardless of where you are. And if you're here for yourselves, you're thinking creatively about yourselves. If you're here for your students, you're thinking creatively about them. But I think what we all have in common is a spirit of entrepreneurship that has given us the freedom to grab an opportunity. And I do think of my friends in graduate school who, and in other places, who are not as entrepreneurial. Um, it's not a judgment call, it's a style. It requires, it, it, it requires practice, it requires a willingness to fail, to have projects go badly, um, to capitalize on successes when they do. But I do think, it, I, I do think that, that American academia um, is still, I mean, it's even, it's very different in the UK for other reasons, but I think American academia has not rewarded entrepreneurship as much as it could, I think it's getting better. I hope one of the things that comes out of this broader project at the AAR is to increasingly reward academic entrepreneurship or intellectual entrepreneurship, because that's ultimately what, what everyone here is pursuing in some form or another. I'd like to jump in and just say, you know, it wasn't even just that. Uh, it was a side gig that I was sort of keeping under wraps because I thought it, people might not take me seriously. I was keeping it under wraps when I was reviewing for Kirkus because my fellowship had a stipulation that we were not allowed to earn any money except during the summer. I'm seeing some nods out here. Is that still a thing? Okay, that needs to not be a thing, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> Um, that is such a crippling kind of regulation for graduate students. If anything, you should be required 10 to 15 hours a week to go and get a job in the world. You know, that would be something that helps you and propels you and possibly even the career office could help you find that job doing something that speaks to your passion. I mean, I did it because I thought it was a fascinating thing to do, to review a book every week and, and see where that would go. And when I had started graduate school, I actually made the mistake of telling someone who was a current graduate student almost about to finish. And I said, you know, I think I would love to be a religion journalist. And you know, I, the department had just invested in me in giving me this fellowship to come to graduate school. And of course, the assumption there is that you're going to become a professor, right? Being a religion journalist, eh, that doesn't count. And he said very kindly, I think that's great. I think you want to keep those cards close to your chest, which I proceeded to do when I was in graduate school. But I still always had that idea that I would like to write uh, for a more popular audience. So that was my kind of entrepreneurship. Someone else on the panel said that there's this perception that if you don't want to be a professor, there must be something wrong with you. I see our job statistics. I just got our report for the next academic year on our job statistics yesterday. Uh, it's not out, not public yet. We're not finished writing it all up and getting all the tables and graphs, but it's grim out there. And I would turn that assumption on its head. If you do want to be a professor, there might be something wrong with you because you're <laughs> <laughs> like Andrew said, it's a cliff, and you don't know if there's going to be a ledge they're below you, so you really need to think about what other paths you might take 
in order to navigate this. I want to jump in. I love this that we brought up the term entrepreneurship because this is how I've been thinking about my YouTube channel. Where if you look on the, on the YouTube space, you have all these educational channels that are production companies. They have employees, they have $200,000 budgets, they cover topics like physics and archaeology and history, and there was no religious studies educational channel. So I'm like, I'll, I'll do that, I can do that, I'm a YouTube <laughs> junkie. So I started it, I started learning how to do studio lighting, how to do video editing, how to do marketing, uh, how to make brand deals. Um, how to design a website to, to be attractive and uh, search engine optimization. So all these things that I never would have learned taking classes on early Christianity and Second Temple Judaism. <laughs> um, and I kind of cynically thought to myself, I have just as much a chance to become YouTube famous as I do to get a tenure track position. And at least among those two options, one of them's completely in my hands. I can push my material, I can make more connections online in the YouTube space. And it's been blowing up. You know, professors all over the, the world are using my videos. It's still a very small channel, but um, high school students contact me and ask, hey, where can I get my degree in religious studies? Uh, so there's, it, it was entrepreneur, an entrepreneurial spirit that led me to do that. And um, it's, it's growing faster, and it looks more like a path than the cliff that's in front of me with the tenure position. So. So you're saying Paul wouldn't have used YouTube if it had been available to him? Yeah. I don't know. Maybe he would have. I don't know. <laughs> Just to add to that, I, I think entrepreneurship, the entrepreneurial spirit is the perfect way of talking about what we're doing here. And what there needs to be, it seems, is a greater uh, effort to, to recognize these accomplishments as, as appropriate to, to the work of being a doctoral student in, in religion. Uh, similarly, uh, I have been working... Uh, as a freelance writer for many years, I had published a couple of books before I entered graduate school, and the number of times I heard those words that you just said, that doesn't count. Um, yeah. Some of my books, uh, without boasting, some of my books before I got to graduate school I'd heard were being taught in religious studies classes. That doesn't count. You know? And so it was a very strange feeling to feel like you're contributing to the field in one way, but yet just by virtue of becoming a graduate student, those contributions cease, cease to matter because of what this position you've now put yourself in, which is sort of the um, part of the infa infantilizing moment of, of being a graduate student, deciding mm -hmm. that whatever you were before, you are now being reformed in, in to fit this guild. So perhaps there needs to be a, a greater recognition of what you bring in to your, your programs when you get there, and a sense that um, often th these detours are the path. Uh, there is not one path or off the path. You, you are going somewhere, and the, the job of those who are leading you through your graduate program should be to help you get there where, wherever it might be. So this leads me to jump again over some other questions. Um, how departments are supporting or not supporting graduate students, adjuncts, even there are people who get tenure track jobs and decide to leave for various reasons. And not just departments, but larger institutions. And if we're comfortable doing so, I'd like to talk about the broader culture of the academy. I very proudly slather Harvard Law School over my name tag and make sure people know what I'm doing, but I've also kind of always had that F.U. attitude Sean was talking about. 
um, you don't think I should do that? Well, watch me do it and do it better than you thought I could. And I think that's part of the entrepreneurial spirit as well. But I have found throughout my journey through the academy, um, both when I was a staff person and a graduate student rather than a fully funded fellow, um, and then when I chose to go into administration rather than uh, follow a more academic path, that I'm often approached with pity and condescension. Um, I was having daily meetings with the provost of Harvard and managing his calendar and helping him prep for his daily meetings. And someone I knew as a faculty person when I was a graduate student, when I emailed them and told them what I was doing said, well, if that's what you want to be doing, then I'm happy for you. And so I'd really like to talk a little bit about not only what are departments and universities doing for us, um, but also what are they not doing for us and what's the broader cultural issue. Also, I'd just like to note my graduate advisor just snuck into the room. I don't know if you know this, Steve. <laughs> I don't know if you know this, Steve, but when I first told a faculty member in the department, I think I need to give myself permission not to end up in the academy, they said, that's wonderful. They closed their office door and then they said, don't tell Steve. <laughs> and it wasn't a statement about Steve. It was a statement about, we don't know how faculty, faculty will react and they might just drop you. So can we talk about that? Could I, I'd like to answer that because I feel like my, my answer a moment ago was, was um, overly negative about my experience. And it wasn't that way at all. I, ultimately, it was, it was all about finding the right faculty people who understood what you were about. Who, who recognized... Brief um, interruption, since yeah. I did that, and this is going to be a podcast later. I walked into Steve's office the next day and said, <laughs> Steve, I need to give myself permission not to do this. And Steve cocked his head sideways like he does and then said, okay, that's great. <laughs> and he then fully supported me. I just want to put that on the record. <laughs> and, and I think a part of that is knowing what you want and being confident in your choices yeah. Yeah. Uh, and presenting it to people you feel will get it and, and waiting for them to say, that sounds great. That's exactly who you are and, and what will be best for your, for your career. So it's all about making that, um, those personal connections with someone who really will understand what your work is about. Yeah, and uh, I'll build on that to say that uh, when I first mentioned to my advisor that I was just considering a non-academic job, that I wanted to pursue that while also trying to pursue other options, um, he seemed a little taken aback and then uh, about a week later at University of Virginia we have these year-end meetings where the whole faculty meet with you and just discuss the progress on your uh, your research, your coursework, or where you are. And I walked in the meeting and the first thing he said was, so you're thinking about administration instead of, you know, a tenure track professorship. And it was sort of just all these little eyes staring at me and I was felt very taken aback. Uh, but I also had an experience that when I said I wanted to consider other options just to have them in my deck of cards in case, you know, how this all works out, um, they were very supportive and I think it's important to tell people to be confident when you tell them and to just explain that this is something that you're exploring. And once I did that, uh, my advisor was able to advise me better and was able to say, well, you said you might be interested in administration, you should try to lead this workshop so that you can get practice on coordinating different people and you should try and do this and you should try and do this and you should apply for this kind of fellowship. Um, and so I think in some ways being open with your advisor can be very helpful. I think the biggest issue is that advisors don't always have the kind of 
the network that they need. They don't have the connections. And so you need to work to actively cultivate that yourself. I think it's important not to over-romanticize the non-academic path. And the, and I mean, I, as, as much as I think that this is about intellectual entrepreneurialism, um, I also don't want to make that look too rosy. Um, and this is where, this is where the, the culture in the department, I was very lucky at Santa Barbara to be in a department that explicitly valued out-of-the-box thinking. I mean, people could really raise their hands in seminars and in, in, in front of faculty and trot out ideas and they could be off the wall and we'd play with them for a while and then we'd you know, move on. And it, it was not, it was a place where you could really bring in outside thinking, you could, um, we, we were, uh, we are multidisciplinary. Um, and that is rewarded and I think part of building, part of what departments can do, irrespective of how, um, what job paths people may be on, is encourage that kind of creative thinking because it's that kind of creative thinking that will enable each of us to take the cards we've been dealt, hold them as close to our chest as we want, and then play them. Um, it, you know, play our best possible hands to kind of pursue this metaphor all the way to a gory end. Um, but I do, I do think that we also need to look to the core values of an academic department as well. It is consistently important to me that I, that I, that my degree background or my, de both, both institutions where I did graduate work, um, give me the authority and the legitimacy to demand integrity in research, to demand honesty about the answers that we find, even when they are inconvenient, to demand an allegiance to truth that um, isn't always the easiest path, isn't always the, um, the natural way. You, people want to see certain outcomes. They want to tell certain stories. So I look at this and I think, I mean that, um, I was a little political earlier, right? For people who are wondering where this country is headed in the broadest scale, the fact that the Smithsonian now is actively engaged in a question about America's religious history and that Peter is in that role is going to have potentially more influence on the way we think, the way our culture imagines through the millions of visitors who pass through the Smithsonian every year, gonna have more influence than all of us in this room put together in a particular kind of way. Mm -hmm. No pressure, <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> and so for him to come from an academic background to be engaged in that kind of public teaching is incredibly important, but it's gonna be the graduate work as much as anything else that's gonna give him the authority and the legitimacy to say that the truth is this, we have to tell the story this way because that is what is true, not as what is convenient. Be, that, that is just the nature of public institutions. Um, 
So we have to we have to find that balance. And I think to go back to the original question of culture in departments, we need to encourage creative thinking, but we also need to stay true to what these departments were set up to do, which is teach us to be seekers of truth and diligent and rigorous and with integrity. I would like to get a read on the audience here. How many of you are current graduate students now? Okay, so a majority. How many of you are faculty advisors now? Just Steve. Steve, thank you for coming. Oh, and one in the back. Okay, wonderful. Thank you both for coming. I, you know, I hope that we are able to spread the word uh, among senior faculty that this is important. Um, speaking to the entrepreneurial question and the sort of snobbery question, first of all, I would say that I noticed that more when I first started not having an academic career than I do now. Now I feel like people chase me down at AAR and say, how do I get another job? How can I get into publishing? I've had so many of those conversations, and I'm happy to answer those questions if anyone has those questions. And how's publishing as a, as a career path? Publishing is a wonderful, okay. wonderful career path. I mean, it's okay? well, it, the economy—it's challenging. It's—it's it's not that publishing is without challenges, but it's much more stable, um, and I certainly can talk about that. You know, the entrepreneurial spirit is something that I don't know that I had early on, but I certainly have it now. And this summer, uh, I've been nursing a project idea for a couple of years to write a book that compares generational attitudes and beliefs among f uh, four generations of Latter-day Saints. And in order to do this, uh, I'm not a social scientist, I was trained as a historian, and I knew that there needed to be a social science component. So one of the things that I learned in graduate school is when you don't know how to do something, you find the people who do, and you beg them, and you bake them cookies, and you ask them to help you, and they do, because you help them with something later. So I got a couple of social scientists to help me develop this survey. And then I started approaching some private foundations that had supported similar work in Mormon studies and also some other academic work, and they all said no. And instead of saying, well, I guess I can't do my project, I thought about it for a while. I talked to my husband, and we decided that this was important enough to me that if we had to, we would actually fund the survey ourselves. And we were looking at about $17,000 as a financial outlay. This is the non-glamorous part that Sean <laughs> alluded to earlier. Um, but I thought, well, why not be entrepreneurial like someone like Andrew and go to Kickstarter? And so I researched what it would take to raise $20,000 on Kickstarter, which is what we ultimately raised, and uh, put all of my good research skills to work talked to a lot of people to say what were the best practices for crowdfunding, what did you do that was stupid, what did you do that worked, and then for two weeks in July, this was kind of my full-time job, was to raise the money for this project. We got all that money, and then I raised an additional $5,000 after the Kickstarter campaign. Um, it was a wonderful experience. It was scary, though. I mean, it's, it's so unseemly for a scholar to go up and say, alms for the poor, you know, it's just, <laughs> it's not what you do, right? But it was so encouraging in the end to have strangers writing to me and saying, uh, I would really like to know this, or why are so many young people leaving the LDS church? What's going on generationally with that? Is your research going to address that? You know, to be doing research that is important publicly, I think is a very empowering thing to have. I think one of the things we learn as graduate students is autodidacticism. That is, being able to teach yourself how to 
do the things or get the knowledge that you don't already have. And I think that that's part of the entrepreneurial spirit because sometimes we rush headlong over those different cliffs and we don't know what we're getting ourselves into. I didn't know a damn thing about hotel contracts before I started <laughs> working at the AAR. But the skills of critical reading and critical analysis that were taught to me in graduate school, I can apply to reading a hotel contract. And then if I have specific questions about the laws of, in this, of contracts in the state of Texas, I go to a lawyer. But uh, yeah, you, you have to learn things on your own. And at some point, you have to ask the right people who do know those things to help you. So I'm struck by the fact that everyone here has a public thrust to what they're doing outside of their academic focus. You know, I'm running a program that does specifically event coordination and programming uh, related to health law and bioethics. And, it, and I nudge them. They're not interested in all the same things that I bring to it, um, but they let me put stuff in on mental health and addiction because I care about it. And we talk to policymakers. Uh, Robert is running AAR. We're all here because of the work that Robert Thank does. You, Robert. <laughs> Andrew is doing digital humanities. Jana is doing you know, religion journalism. Peter is at the Smithsonian. <laughs> <laughs> in addition to her whiskey habit, Natasha is doing events and websites and communications. And Sean is doing you know, public nonprofit and government work. Do you think this urge to have an outward focus and a real world impact as you know Sean used the phrase real world had something to do with leading you a little further afield I can speak briefly to that like I, I love teaching like teaching is is great and it was that love of teaching that led me into starting the YouTube channel because you can reach tens of thousands of people instead of the you know 15 to 30 people in your classroom um, and I use some of the same, you know, skills that I have in office hours, but online. So when a high school student emails me and asks, hey, where should I get my religious studies degree? Like, I can converse with that student through email uh, in the same way that I would in, would in office hours. So having a, a public orientation definitely, yeah, I would, I would agree, uh, encouraged me to go into that, that space. For me and for maybe for others, it's just a, uh, it's born of the writer's desire for, for, for an audience, for readership. Um, if, if you're going to do the work, it's better that a thousand people read it than four people on your committee read it. <laughs> so uh, that's, that's been my motivation all along. Uh, and trying to find ways to, uh, to, um, to do both uh, was, one of the, was one of the lines I had to walk while I was in graduate school, to try to do both at once and to find out that um, they are not... Um, Writing for four and writing for th four th thousands, one hopes, uh, they're, they're not different skills. They're just, um, they're both uh, levels of communication and, and persuasion to trying to find um, ways to reach the most people with the same work. I think there is a difference, though, between public and the public, right? In the sense that um, there are moments when it is teaching or writing or communicating 
knowledge of some form um, to a bigger, a bigger, bigger audience, right? The greatest number of people. There's also something about the public, um, the notion of a commons, the notion of a of a of a of a broader conversation, and I think it's important to make the distinction between the two because you, you scale businesses, right? You scale, I mean, we can scale academia, um, uh, uh, um, you know, a large online course, um, a MOOC is a scaled classroom in some sense. We've just sort of deleted the, the chairs and the walls. Um, that's a different, uh, that's a different conversation from saying, which also happens in the academy, what are the implications when we bring religious studies, uh, theories about the humanities or the social sciences uh, into public discourse in the way that it affects the um, government, the uh, public, um, public interaction, elections, implementation, all of those pieces. Both conversations are incredibly important, um, but they're not the same conversation. And so I think we just need to have that precision. I see um, some people may choose to go down a path that is a reflection of their capacity to take knowledge and scale it outside of the university, outside of the classroom, but it's fundamentally a similar set of objectives with uh, new skills added, conference organizing, workshop organizing, um, publishing in new ways, communicating in different ways, blowing up on YouTube. Um, those, are, those are a series of challenges. Others, I think, and we've talked about this in sessions, in AAR sessions going back a couple of years, are looking into nonprofit work, foundation work, um, government work, different kinds of career paths that are not so much about the improved search for knowledge or the improved communication of knowledge, but a around governing the way people interact with one another, the way we shape lives, the way we make lives better, um, the way we improve the structure and operations of our society. And I think religious studies has something to say really clearly in both of those spheres. And there are probably other spheres as well. But the distinction of public probably is worth splitting up at least in those two ways for a start. That's a great point. I'm sorry. That, that's a great point, and it makes me want to amend my answer a little bit because there is something that um, there is something that's lost when you decide that you will be speaking to the public. Of course, uh, yeah. uh, in my in my role as a writer for many years, I, I spoke for myself. Now I, I speak for for someone else. I speak for the nation. <laughs> <laughs> no pressure. But seriously, when when you when you decide to become part of an institution, you are often speaking for the institution. You're speaking often for AAR, you're speaking right. for Publishers Weekly when you're with Publishers Weekly. So it's, um, and so you do lose something of your own unique scholarly voice. Mm -hmm. And it's a, a trade-off, but, um, and then it's up to each of us who are considering that kind of change to decide if that trade-off is one that's worth making. All right, does anybody have final words before we take it to the audience and I play Vanna White? <laughs>
All right, I'll take that as a no on final words. Um, so, questions, comments, remarks for the good of the order? Hello, I have a question specifically for Andrew. Um, do you feel that new media is underutilized by scholars? And if so, what can graduate schools do to sort of start to begin to correct that lack of education on that front? Um, scholars in general, no. Religious studies scholars, yes. So in the U YouTube specifically, uh, academics of almost every field have massive presences online. Uh, there's, so kinds of, there's so many kinds of science literacy YouTube channels. There's a botany YouTube channel with like 20,000 subscribers. Uh, religious studies is just completely lacking. So uh, ways that a, an institution can help prepare graduate students do exist. Boston University has a new media program. I didn't even know that existed until I started reaching out into my own institution to look for those connections. Um, so I guess the first, first mission would be look, at, look into your own institution and see what's already there. Uh, Boston University has a growing, uh, er, push to do digital humanities. I, I went to a, a conference on new media. Um, and the skills are not necessarily intuitive. Learning how to, to market, how to do search engine optimization. Like this is stuff that you need to, what we talked about auto diet, like teaching yourself. Like these are things you need to try to teach yourself and look for those resources. Hope that answers your question. Hi. Um, uh, first off, I just want to say thank you guys so much for being here and presenting as someone, as a student who has had a very strong reality check about being a professor. Um, it's very grateful. It's very hopeful to see this. Um, and I was just wondering, I'm actually an undergrad right now. I'm not a graduate student. We're in the minority at this conference. But um, I was wondering if any of you current graduate students or looking back at your undergraduate time, your graduate time, what advice you would give to people who, to your naive self, to that person who is still a spot, who was still aspiring to be a professor, something that you would do differently, or just really any suggestions when, as an up and coming scholar? If y'all don't mind, I'd like to throw in there, take some time off and work before you go to graduate school. I was 22 uh, when I started at BU as a PhD student. I was wearing a set of Eeyore pajamas when Steve called me <laughs> to talk about entering the graduate program. I mean, I was, I was straight in, and I, I didn't know what I wanted to do other than study. I had no idea, and um, particularly working in a professional school now, a law school, um, I know Dean Martha Minow at Harvard Law School has actually made a very conscious effort under her tenure to flip the matriculation. They used to take about 75% students straight out of undergrad, and now they've flipped that to 75% students who have work experience. And her feeling, and she comes to staff orientations and talks to us about this when we're new, and her feeling is that you need to know why you're getting the degree. Mm -hmm. You need to know why, and you need to know what you can do with it, other than some sort of nebulous idea of lawyer, professor. So take a year or two off and work. So, so I did not take time off. I just went straight through. <laughs> so I was 23 when I entered the program. Um, I, I guess what I would tell my, my past self would be whatever you, you think about the job market, 
it's 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 worse than that because I thought I was going in with a wide op open eyes because even as an undergraduate I knew it would be really rare to get a tenure position but I, I would beat the odds um, but by the time I was like my third year of the program and reading like the AAR and the SBL uh, statistics I'm like it's pretty bad um, so I guess if I could tell my 22 year old self start curating these side projects earlier or start thinking about other plan A's earlier because um, I might be in an ev even better position now had I done that because I didn't really start thinking about other options until the third, fourth year of the program. Um, yeah, and just to add to that, uh, I think one of my pieces of advice would be to not assume that you're obviously going to be a professor, as we were saying, mm -hmm. um, but just to say yes to things. And yeah. just, even if you feel like you're overwhelmed and have too much time, just keep saying yes to things. Because um, everything you say no to is an opportunity you're not going to have again in the future. Um, and we're talking about entrepreneurship, and I really think that um, some ways the people that are good at entrepreneur, are being entrepreneurs right now, in some ways actually are setting themselves even up better for an um, academic job market because you know, you can't, when you go on the job market, you can't just get by on, I have a PhD anymore. Right. And so, be an entrepreneur, but be an entrepreneur in every aspect of a career. So, can, do you mind, may I ask what you're studying? What are studying? Yeah. Um, I'm a double major in religion and philosophy with um, healthcare overlap. Okay, so um, I'm gonna, I'm gonna make some assumptions for the sake of discussion about the healthcare in rural Africa piece, which is um, the, other, the other choice when it comes to graduate school is, is the why, right, to what purpose, but then also what kind of degree will get you where you wanna go. Um, I said earlier that it took me a really long time to finish. I started for the right reasons. I finished primarily because I made a promise to myself and to my advisors and to my mom that I would get this done, <laughs> and I you did. You kept telling the rest of us you were going to get it done. Oh, I'm sorry? You kept telling the rest of us. I know, I, I, I was planning to get it done. I had uh, promised all these people. Um, but, but the thing is, there are different kinds of PhDs. There are different kinds of, um, in the government, if you have a PhD, you're at a, in some, in some pay scales, you're just gonna get paid more than the exact same person with the exact same experience who has a master's or a BA. There's some jobs you're not gonna get without a PhD. But for instance, if you're interested in development work, you could potentially look at a British institution, look at a three-year PhD with a shorter thesis. It might not get you a tenure-track job as easily to be candid about how that works, but it might get you an NGO position, which is what you really want, really much, much more quickly. So before you think about the grad school path, take a look at the actual jobs that you're hoping to achieve on the other end and look not only at what the title, PhD, MA, MBA, Master's in Public Administration or Public Policy, Law Degree, whatever that is, but then even within those programs, look at the different flavors that are available, the different speeds to degree, the different types of writing requirements or capstone requirements, and pick the one that will most efficiently and effectively get you where you wanna go. If what you really wanna do is spend a lot of time thinking, then sure, go for the, I mean, don't, don't 
don't cut yourself off just because, because this is the one time in your life when you can sit in the library and meditate and think about it and lose yourself. And those, those are wonderful opportunities. But if you're thinking in terms of how do I get where I want to go, um, do some of those calculations and make a more informed choice so that you don't find yourself going down one path when you could have gone down another more quickly. I can tell you about a great program in health law policy and bioethics at Harvard Law School that's run by a bunch of philosopher lawyers, so. I would also add that um, I wish I had known that uh, you will get someplace eventually. And you will get someplace eventually. You will settle into a career eventually. And along the way, don't be afraid of odd jobs. You know, don't be afraid of learning new skills or doing what it takes to pay the rent, you know? Um, for many, for, well, I guess for, for a solid year, I worked as a carpenter's assistant. Um, and now, in my museum work, when I talk to exhibit fabricators, I know what they're talking about. They realize, oh, this guy knows what he's talking about. And my PhD doesn't mean anything to them, but the fact that I know um, you know, how to uh, make a joint, you know, it's, um, <laughs> it's, that's useful. And so no matter what those odd job skills are, they end up being useful in ways you would never really expect. So don't be afraid of that and don't feel like going down one detour is, is taking you necessarily away from where you want to go. I just want to echo that because, I don't know, I'm, I'm sort of a work-obsessed person and I think work is so, of so much value for us as human beings. Um, but even if it's not relevant, when, when I was going to graduate school, I took one semester between when I got my master's and when I went to get my PhD. And ostensibly it was because I wanted a break from full-time study, but it was really more that I kind of wanted to work. So I wrote freelance articles for the Princeton Packet, which is, I don't even know if it's still in existence, but it was this adorable little local newspaper. So I would cover little local things. And when Mother Teresa came to Trenton, I went down to Trenton and got to meet Mother Teresa, which was cool. But I also worked at ETS as a temp. ETS is, you know, the, the evil people from the college board who make the SAT test and all of that. And, you know, had a down moment one day when I stapled my thumb. Um, but that, that moment was actually a very important turning point. This, this is why I'm going to graduate school. Yes, so I don't have to have this job ever, ever again. <laughs> Those jobs are important too. The ones that help you define what you don't want to do. Thanks, Chrissy. Nice to see you. Um, I just wanted to make a pitch for quitting. You know, um, I mean, sometimes you're just in the wrong degree program and you should stop. You know, and, uh, and Peter, did you finish your master's with us or no? At BU? No. Yeah, no. So Peter quit. So <laughs> Pe Peter's a quitter. Um, you know, Peter was employed in our uh, department and he took our money and he just built the Killing the Buddha website while he was working supposedly for BU um, <laughs> and supposedly doing his master's and then he just quit. Um, but I, the, the quitting story I remember is I had a conversation a few years ago with a, a PhD student. He was ABD. Uh, he had a dissertation he was you know, semi-interested in, not super, like probably more than Sean was in, interested in, in finishing it, but, but uh, and uh, he said, and he it took him this long time to work up this meeting with me, you know, because I was his, his advisor. Right? And uh, so he came in and he said, you know, I'm thinking about leaving the program. And I said, okay, well, you know, why? Uh, what's your thinking? And he said, well, I'm not really 
that jazzed about my dissertation. Uh, I have a really good job now, and uh, and when I get out, I'm probably not going to actually get an academic job right away. And if I do, I'll be making less money, and I'll be less interested in the work that I'm doing than the work I'm doing now. Because he was working, he was doing uh, like ethnography of business. He was studying how shoppers shop for this company that was using, he was, he was trained as an ethnographer. Um, and he just went through this whole list of things and there was like 10 reasons why he should take this, you know, keep this job and quit and there were zero reasons why he should stay. And I just looked at him, I said, why are we even having this conversation? <laughs> you know, you should, sounds like you should leave. And he left and he's making way more money than I make and he's really <laughs> happy, loves his work. Good ending, like good choice. Just quit, you know? That's one option. I'd like to point out that was Roddy Knowles who was on this panel last year. <laughs> <laughs> um, I also want to thank you so much for doing this. I think um, this is still sort of a taboo topic for a lot of our institutions, including mine. Um, and I am a um, graduate student in the writing phase and I just accepted a alt-act job um, in the dean's office at our college uh, as assistant director of academic affairs, and I love it. Um, I do event planning and stuff like that. But um, part of my job is doing graduate student programming, and so I'm doing professional development series for graduate students, and we have already received tons of faculty pushback. Um, and I was wondering if you can sort of address the issue of faculty, particularly advisors, who tell their graduate students that they can't advise them about jobs outside the academy. Um, they don't either have the network or they don't feel comfortable writing recommendations for these sorts of jobs and what graduate students are supposed to do in those sorts of situations. Um, first, I'd like to point out to everybody, and this is related to your question, we've got a panel this afternoon. You can ask Steve questions instead of letting him just pepper us from the audience. Uh, so 3 o'clock, where we're going to be talking to faculty. Um, and Robert and I are already talking about what we want to do next year, and I think one of the things we're hoping to do is maybe plan a panel to bring in some folks who deal with career services issues at universities. Yeah. Yes. So we should talk. Yes. That's definitely on our radar. So what do you guys think? Um, I, had a, I had an excellent dissertation advisor. Um, who I never went to with career advice uh, because I, I had other interests than, that, than his experiences. And, and I think that to have some sympathy for advisors uh, in this moment, um, they may not be able to give good advice about alternate mm -hmm. careers, in fact, because they, this is the world they know. And so um, deciding to go another way may be deciding that you're not going to go there for, for, this, for advice on this particular front. Faculty advisors are like DNA. They're only meant to replicate themselves. <laughs> so you need to get advice from people outside. Um, and back to one of the earlier questions, I wanted to make the point that if you really are hardcore about trying to go for that tenure track job, and I'm, I'm guessing those people aren't in this room, but this word should be spread anyway. Really, really talk to your advisors, other faculty members, about what their real world life is like. Because they may paint one picture to the public, but they have their own severe challenges as well. And 
the it's not all you know the primrose path once you get down that tenure track and even once you get past the point of having tenure a lot of them confidentially will tell you that they're pretty miserable in those jobs um and so you know get a few beers in them and, and they'll they, they might disclose what it's really like fine whiskey yeah. fine whiskey <laughs> good whiskey yes. there you go um first of all just a question like a follow-up question so it sounds like faculty are kind of trying to stand in the way of what a career services office is trying to do. Is that accurate? Well, it's a little complicated. Our career services, I'm at Temple University um, in Philadelphia, and our career services um, really doesn't service graduate students, um, which is a huge problem for us, and we're trying to remedy that. Um, but so they're more in line with undergraduate career services, and so it's always been assumed that faculty advisors are your career services um, for graduate students. So um, we, did, we recently just had Leonard Cazuto come to Temple, who is the author of this book called The Graduate School Mess, um, which is basic, it's a, a wonderful book, and it talks about how messy the whole graduate school system is, um, primarily that we're letting in more PhDs than we can give jobs to. Um, and so we sort of had him come in and he pushed back on our faculty and said, you know, you know, we were talking about how we need to be autodidactic, we need to teach ourselves, why can we not expect our faculty advisors to teach themselves how to advise us in these other career options, particularly considering the dismal state of the job market. So I don't know if that answers your question It at does, all, and yeah, I think that's probably hitting upon a situation many of you are familiar with at your institutions. Um, I was lucky, Sean was lucky, we had an, an advisor who was a public scholar and he was so supportive. And now when I still see, this is emotionally like important to me, when I see him at conferences now, he makes it clear how proud he is of me and what I'm doing, even though I'm not, you know, his clone. <laughs> and I think that you're right, that academics have grown up in a system, grown up, whatever, uh, been raised up in a system in which they are expected to perpetuate the system. And this is challenging for many of them. So leading them along and showing them that these possibilities exist, and what's more, in order to be responsible institutions, we have a mandate to show students what the possibilities are. Um, surely they would see that this is in their best interest of the program eventually, because if people are graduating from their program and 5% of them get tenure track jobs, I mean, I heard 10% last night, right, Steve? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's untenable in the long term for the success and future of a program. I was just going to add sort of two or three really practical steps. So one, you made the point about the letters of recommendation. And one of the things that is surprising sometimes, although we have this in academia, right, is sometimes we're asked to write our own letters of recommendation and then give them over to people to sign or to adapt for their own purposes. So one thing your office could do actually is work with grad students. We've talked a lot on this panel about how different skill sets have emerged in terms of um, conference organizing or working with uh, publishers, working with, with funders, um, working with not, you know, in other fields potentially you could be working with those graduate students. So it may, it may be a level of faculty discomfort with, with actually thinking up the language for a recommendation letter. But if you can put a recommendation letter, a couple of paragraphs in front of a faculty member and say, do you think this is true about me? 
right? Here's how I would phrase it for the field that I'm going in. I think there are relatively few people who would say, no, I'm not going to sign that. Or they, they, would, they wouldn't be willing to adapt it and then, and then sign something. The second thing is to look at the broader ecosystem in which academia operates, right? So um, every successful faculty member has um, an editor somewhere at a publishing house who might be a source of information. Every, um, every grant that's ever been written has been recommended by a program officer at a foundation. So there are ways to um, help faculty members think about their relationships and say, okay, I, I get that you don't want to do that, but I see you have, I'm going to make this up, like I see you have you've had, for the last five years, you've had Lilly funding or Ford funding. Is there somewhere that you might be able to call and be willing to introduce your student to this foundation or bring this program officer to campus to do a, to, to do a presentation about what foundation work looks like? I think it's a question of um, recognizing that faculty members who are traditional academics may not see the, you know, they're, they're fish not seeing the water. Um, and we're kind of seeing water. I'd just like to add to that also. I think there's a degree to which, well, not a degree, we need to work to help people in traditional academic paths understand that the PhD is useful off the academic path. Yeah. Sean made that point really, really well. I think we need to hammer on that. It's useful, it's useful, it's useful. A lot of my colleagues from BU, Robert included, Andrew already before graduating, Peter kind of, even though he quit. Um, and a number of other people I could name are out doing really great stuff, publishing, writing, nonprofit work, journalism. They've taken this out into the world and they are better at what they are doing and they are communicating the factual material that Sean pointed up as being so important in a much deeper and richer way than they would be if they didn't have that graduate training. So we also need to get over the hump and stop thinking of this as plan B, and we need to stop thinking of PhD programs as only for people who want to teach. Now, do you necessarily have to have the PhD to do those other things? No, but can it give you a deeper and richer skill set and knowledge base to build on going into other spaces? Absolutely. Fun fact for anybody, um, Steve, this might be up your alley. The incoming chair, elected chair of the Los Angeles County Board of Supervisors has a PhD in religion from USC. Mark Ridley Thomas, Dr. Mark Ridley Thomas. Um, thank you for that. I have a question that kind of piggybacks on something that you just talked about. So if, <clears throat> If someone wants to um, pursue a narrow path in academia, the name of the institution, the caliber of the institution matters a lot, right? Mm -hmm. You've all graduated successfully through some, you know, not too shabby institutions. <laughs> so I don't know if you're gonna be able to um, address this, but for those of us who don't have plans or a desire to go on to um, tenure track positions, um, and are very interested in doing some creative things with a, a doctoral degree. I don't have a PhD yet. Um, can, you, can you speak to how much um, does the name of the institution, the caliber of the institution, the name of the degree matter? Or is it? do you get to a certain point where it's just having the PhD, 
um, already is kind of opens doors, no matter where it's from, no matter what it's in. Um, and kind of a, a part two to that question um, is about tuition. What does it really cost to get a PhD? Is it worth, right, is it worth the, the, high tu the tuition at a higher caliber institution if you're not going to really go that way? I'll just uh, speak for working in government. In, in my experience, it does not matter where your PhD comes from. There, there are certain, um, certain parts of the government, from what I understand, my wife is a government lawyer, so I hear this mainly from her anecdotally, certain parts of the government attract uh, people from certain schools. Uh, but in my experience at the Smithsonian and knowing others with, with um, <coughs> doctoral degrees within government, having the degree matters. There's, there's nothing like the academic obsession with where it comes from. Mm -hmm. um, having the degree is what matters in government. I agree. And so in, in terms of, if you're looking at paying for graduate school yourself, um, it, it sounds like you're already on your way with, within whatever program you're already in. But, but anyone who may be looking at this, it is so not worth it. If you are the one paying for the PhD, uh, you need to think really long and hard about that. But I wish we would take a lesson from what goes on in other fields routinely. My husband's an engineer, and he has a doctorate. Um, no one ever asks, where did your PhD come from? Mm -hmm. He has a, a brass rat that he wears, because he went, um, it's, a, it's a ring that if you were a total nerd around the world, you instantly recognize this as like your geekdom thing, because it means you went to MIT. But his doctorate is not from MIT. He went there for undergrad. His, his doctorate is just from a state university where we happen to be living. But it doesn't matter because automatically at the company where he works, you know, having the doctorate opens doors. It doesn't matter where the degree came from. And this is pretty typical. And if we look at what goes on in engineering, if we look at go what goes on in the sciences, um, and also the social sciences, we could learn a lot about how this happens, where people have PhDs and they go and do really cool other stuff, and where they got the degree is less important than having the degree. Chrissy, there's a gentleman in the back that's had his oh, hand okay. up for a while. It's hard to know what's possible, especially, uh, I guess, what I would like to be able to do is kind of submit like, hey, here's my experience, here are my interests, here's what I'm working on, and then receive like a variety of responses from a group like yourselves of what you know, what might I be able to pursue in publishing or in government or in other humanities organizations? Um, is it possible that either through AAR or that something like that could be facilitated to allow those of us who are looking for, you know, what can I actually do? Like, you know, my MA in Buddhist studies with uh, sort of emphasis in Buddhist theology and trying to see how, you know, how that can be applied to do something good in this world. Um, what can I do? <laughs> or, or even or how each of you might be able to speak to what you do more as a field. Like in some of your cases, it seems like, okay, you have your job, but if I was gonna do that, I'd be trying to take your job because it's very <laughs> unique. Um, whereas, what are the broader applications? How might you speak of what you do as, um, as broader opportunities for us? We have a reception tonight, and following somebody's advice on the panel, you can get a couple of beers in us, and we'll be really, really honest. Um, so start there, 8 o'clock tonight. Robert, where, where are we meeting? That's in the Marriott River Center at the bar. Just at the, it's called The Bar. Did you catch the that? Bar. At the bar. <laughs> yeah. 
mean, just real briefly, there are resources online. I don't know if you've heard of the website versatilephd.com, mm -hmm. uh, which is an online community of scholars looking for an alternate path. And they actually have a whole page where it's like, so you have a humanities degree? Okay, here are some options. And it just lists like all these career options. And not only that, it has people that are members of Versatile PhD who are in those careers currently. So it's not just like a, here's a possible path. Like it's, here's a professional, here's their degree, and this is how they got there. So it's like an online forum uh, repository of information. You should check it out. I, I think it's also, I mean, we each, we all have very um, individual situations, I think, and for, for anyone, it's always a matter of assessing where you are and, and making opportunities out of the challenges. You know? I've been thinking a lot about that meme of the dog drinking coffee in the burning building. You've seen this? Yeah. Uh, it's, a, it's a dog drinking coffee in a burning building, and he says, this is fine. <laughs> uh, so I, I think for a lot of us, uh, this is fine. I mean, this is where we find ourselves and we, how do you make the best of this situation? So it's all, it's all very individual and um, trying to make the connections that exist within your network and, and seeing where they lead. So I think two, three years ago we, when we did the panel, we had somebody from the MLA um, mm -hmm. and they have a website where, if I'm not, Robert, correct me if I'm misremembering this, they will help you They'll, they'll tell you how, what, are, what are the keywords for the skills that you've developed that you haven't realized that you've developed, that you can, that you, and, then, and then what I would recommend is looking even at something like LinkedIn, mm -hmm. right? But LinkedIn makes sense if you have the right keywords in your profile, and, you know, or monster.com or ZipRecruiter or whatever those are, but, um, but before you go on to those services, um, go to, and I'm sure Versatile PhD probably has data like this as well, but the MLA has invested a lot of, so you've done research, therefore you have bibliographic skills, you've curated conferences, therefore you have, and, it, and it's, a, it's a trans, essentially it's a translation, and it's all the things you know you know how to do, but didn't realize that you needed to list in a resume. Yeah. And you put that into your profile along with Buddhist studies, theology, content from your skills, and then it'll, it'll do a search, but I, but you know, we are not. I just would say we are not unique in this field in wanting to know what we can do with our skills. Mm -hmm. I mean, every academic conference, you know, worth its salt is having a panel like this. But in other professions um, across the, the 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 various sectors, people are thinking this way. And so when you look at the online services that are out there. They're really designed and programmed from the ground up to be able to take any discipline, any field, any um, set of qualifications. As long as you have the keywords that translate, it'll help you navigate. But you need to have those keywords first. And I'd like to say the AR has done some really great work on mentorship for people in a more traditional academic path. And I would love to develop programs uh, for mentorship for people who are going on a, a more non-traditional path like, like we have. So that's why I've created this Applied Religious Studies Working Group is to try to get a, a core group of people who might be able to, to help out students who are in this, exactly this situation and, and work on developing that. So if you have suggestions or ideas about that, please uh, send them to me rpocket at aarweb.org.
I'm Steve from St. Louis, and uh, I just have a couple things to share, and no need for a response on these. But first, thanks for having this discussion. It's really, really important. Um, my view is that people in humanities should take a business degree at the same time, either as a backup or that they're going to need some of those business skills. Um, it's important to talk about entrepreneurship. That's really good. Um, but we have to keep in mind, uh, you know, a lot of entrepreneurial, entrepreneurial projects don't succeed. Keep that in mind. And some succeed as projects, but there's no money in them. So, you know, it's not a, a magic solution, important as it is. Uh, I tried to survive as an adjunct and thinking entrepreneurially. And uh, about a year ago in, in Inside Higher Ed, they ran a piece of mine called Treadmill to Oblivion, if you're interested on it. Um, but I've been doing it as an adjunct for 26 years. And I've taught 40 different courses. And my total course number is like 508 courses. So I've taught more than twice what a full-time would teacher. teacher. And it hasn't worked. Uh, you know, here I am, after all, this is a really good teacher and get good reviews, students like me, and I don't know if I'm going to have enough courses in the spring. So it's good to have this discussion, and we you know, keep, getting, keep coming up with ideas. Thank you. Thank, thank you for, for offering that. I, I just wanted to, to add, um, and the, the scope of your teaching made me think of it. Um, multidisciplinarity is, incre is, is very important, and, and think about how many people here are uh, really into more than one language, right? So you all know already what translation looks like and that thinking and expressing oneself looks different, profoundly different from one language to another. How many people are pursuing multiple disciplines within your work? Raise, raise your hand. Again, that's very important because you see that in one, what is, what is a standard way of thinking about something in one field comes out totally differently in another field, even if you, at the end of the day, think of it as, wait, that's what I was doing over here as X is expressed as Y. That's the kind of flexibility that is valued outside of academia that, that you can put to your own good use. As I was thinking, um, and, and then how many people here are working not so much in text, but in ethnographic, uh, contemporary, you know, working with living people, living expressions of religious tradition? Okay, a few of you. So um, very practically, find the nearest human-centered design certificate course in your community or user-centered design course. Usually you can do it in about 10 weeks. Go get one because that's how they say ethnography these days outside academia. Um, and, it's, and it's the kind of skill set that will serve you well. The trick, though, is to remember that people use different words, different phrases, make different assumptions. But since you're multidisciplinary and speak multiple languages, you know that already. Um, hi, thanks for this. Um, my name is Emily Mace, and I, I finished my PhD in American Religious History um, in 2010, and I've been doing the exact same thing you guys have been doing, um, you know, sort of saying yes to opportunities that came along and not knowing really where they would lead. So, you know, this is, this is a common theme. Um, and, you know, a couple of years ago, I was on the graduate student, I forget what the official name for the graduate student working group is, but I was on the ALTAC career panel then and, um, you know, listed out 10 points that are the same as what you guys are saying now. So I'm not sure if that's encouraging or discouraging that we're all saying the same thing year after year, 
Um, hopefully it's encouraging and you know the word about how to do this will get around. Um, so I just wanted to, to echo that and then also to say something about entrepreneurial approaches, um, which is to think, think maybe smaller picture about it. It doesn't necessarily have to mean go out and start a business and maybe it'll fail. And I'm hoping you guys can respond to this comment in particular because I think this is one of these questions of translation, right? You hear, I hear entrepreneurial initially and I think I'm not an entrepreneur. And I think one of the challenges that people in academia face is thinking in a contemporary way about career trajectories as having more than one starting and stopping point and circling back around. Some of us go into grad school thinking, I'm gonna get tenure at a college and stay there for life. But it's actually more complicated than that. And I think embracing that complicatedness is, is part of the way that we have to rethink what entrepreneurial can mean. So maybe you guys can just kind of unpack that term a little bit. In a strict sense, I think only Jana is really the, the entrepreneur here because I work for an existing institution. Sean works for an existing institution. Peter works for an existing institution. But we were creative in the ways we were thinking about taking the skills that we had and applying them in different ways. And I think that's what Sean meant by academic entrepreneurship. I, I did, although I would say I have been, an, I mean, I am a social entrepreneur having founded nonprofits start, that yes. I worked for. <laughs> right, exactly. So um, I, I think you're right in the sense that um, it's, you know, we don't have to all, sub you know, we don't have to all subject our life plans to Shark Tank, right? <laughs> um, but uh, entrepreneurialism, I think, is, well, I made the point for two reasons. One is that I do think we need to be entrepreneurial even within inst in institutions, which is to say, um, think about where you wanna go and how you're gonna get there and be creative in how you're gonna achieve those outcomes and don't let existing rules or structures or assumptions or conventions govern how you go from point A to point B, right? We've all been on these kind of really windy paths that um, are, are entrepreneurial in nature. But I do wanna say respectfully that I have colleagues who are not entrepreneurial. They're not the people who go out and found the startups. They're the people who, when the startups have been founded and need a stable, steady hand to keep the operation going, to really um, be a, a builder and a sustainer rather than the catalyst dynamo, um, sometimes a little flaky entrepreneur, um, those, those folks also play an incredibly important role. You can't do the one without the other. So if in sitting and listening to this conversation, your thought is, whoa, I can't do that. Um, it doesn't mean you can't. It means you have a different approach to doing what you do and there are stable paths, there are, um, there are, I'm looking for the right words to describe this, but it is to work in an institution does not require that you be the founder of that institution, right? And it doesn't require that you always be the outside person and that you always be selling yourself and that you always be thinking about the broader messaging and that you be, it is, it is an equal, um, honorable, necessary, critical, if we do not have people who are keeping the lights on <laughs> and building and doing the incremental work from one day to the next, we won't be here long because flashes in the pan are just that. So 
it, th th there's a partnership, and I would just say, think creatively, but be honest with yourself about the level of anxiety and the level of volatility that you can handle in your life. And it varies. Some, you know, maybe that for a decade you're into volatility and then you just really need some calm. Give yourself permission to be self-aware in that way and then look for the opportunities. Think creatively. Always think creatively. Always question your assumptions. But don't put yourself in a position that's going to feel really uncomfortable because, because then you'll be drinking that coffee in the burning building and you'll think, man, this tastes terrible. <laughs> hey, Robert, let's, let's just get a shout out for those of us who keep the budgets and manage yeah. the contracts. That's right. <laughs> and I think I'd add to that, um, kind of building off of that, my mama was an economist, so I always think about this, that you are a product and you are a brand, whether you're mm -hmm. trying to become a professor or trying to become you know, a blog operator, an administrator, whatever you want to do, you're a product and think of yourself as I need to have these skills, I need to show that I can do that. You know, you think about like a box when you go and buy something, it says as seen on TV, be like as seen on this blog, you know. Thank you for saying that I'm an entrepreneur. I appreciate that. I love that label, but I want to tell you that um, you know, there are also a lot of failures in my work history, including one that I just thought of when you were talking, Sean. Um, for about four months, I went and worked. I quit a very stable, wonderful job, which was kind of stupid, to go work for a startup company, an internet company that was starting a publishing division. And I was going to be in charge of this digital publishing division. It was so intoxicating, right? And uh, I will spare you the details, but what I learned about myself in that brief time was that I liked actually getting paid. <laughs> it was totally shocking to learn this, right? But when, when people promise that you will have a paycheck, it's really nice when the paycheck actually comes. And that didn't happen, and uh, none of us were getting paid. So I eventually quit, and also, you know, there's some personal things. My mother was dying, so I had a sort of valid excuse for saying I, I need to leave. Um, but it was really stinging to have that work experience and to have that, that sense of failure um, but I also learned a tremendous lesson, which is that I'm not as entrepreneurial as I thought I was, that I valued stability in a way that I didn't quite realize about myself. So all of these things give us experience and help us as we're making choices in the future about different job positions. Um, I'm on the front end of, uh, of postdoctoral work, and something I've been wondering is, um, I notice even though I'm not that interested in the sort of the regular way, um, the, the narrative in, in academia is so strong that it's, I find myself drinking the Kool-Aid even though I don't want it. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about uh, how, how do you manage that, you know, if you're surrounded by it and people are, and your advisors are sort of built to replicate themselves, but you're not, you know, you kind of know that you don't really want to do that. How do you sort of maintain your own integrity in that environment, getting this training that's so valuable? Um, I would just say let yourself grieve because whether you want the Kool-Aid now, you wanted it at some point or you wouldn't have started the graduate studies. And um, I knew I was done when I finished my PhD. And um, I, found, I found myself at a certain point, there was a job offering listed because I stayed on all the listservs at my undergraduate institution. And I emailed a faculty person who I still know there and I said, 
you know, I kind of feel like I ought to. I, what do you think? What do you, you know, would I be taken seriously? And 20 minutes later, the phone on my desk in the provost's office at Harvard rang because he had Googled me to find my phone number. And I picked up the phone and he said, really? That was the tone. He said, you, you don't want this. You don't want this. And he listed all of the reasons that he knew from my Facebook page <laughs> were my reasons for going a different direction. But that pull was still so strong. And you go in and you take a really long time, some of us longer than others for Sean. <laughs> but for me, it was 10 years door to door. Mm -hmm. And you, you go in thinking you're headed for this single outcome. And whether you want it at the end or not, you're still having to let go. And I think there's not enough acknowledgement that whether you want it at the end or not, it's still hard to let go yeah. of the expectations and of what you wanted when you committed yourself to that slog in the first place. Because it's really, really, really hard to get a PhD. And you were all in. So I, I think that was the first step for me, was acknowledging that even though I knew I didn't want that anymore, I still had to let myself be sad. Um, and then just, I'm a fan of lists. I love bullet points. Everybody on this panel will tell you, having received my organizing emails, I made lists of all of the reasons that I made the decision not to go the academic route. And I reviewed them periodically to remind myself. And it was like, oh yeah, that's why I did this. That's why I'm here. You know, Steve said that the student came into his office and had 10 reasons why he ought to leave and none why he should stay. Lists are good and they can remind you of what your reasoning is when your feelings are something else. Right. Sometimes that Kool-Aid man crashes through the wall and it's like, oh yeah! <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I've had you know, those conversations in my work with the AER. I, I talk with you know, a number of people in, in academia who very politely but quietly ask me, well, don't you want to go back into teaching? You're really well positioned for this. You know everybody in the academy. You, you could probably apply over here. And I think to myself, mm, what were my reasons for doing that? Yeah, okay, I, no, that's not really what I want. <laughs> and you have to kind of politely decline that those thoughts to yourself in some ways. But it, the, the allure is definitely there still. I, I think it, it always will be for us. I think it I think it also helps um, to have to sort of sort of in the physician heal thyself category right let's 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 apply our own lens and methodology and to 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 the situations that we're in right people frequently stay in religious communities not because they agree with the doctrine but because they have strong social capital in those communities mm -hmm. and they have relationships that matter to them and they have a way of living or a way of life, a safety net, um, friends for their kids, all these things that have really very little to do with the propositional um, doctrines that are being asserted from the, from, from the pulpit. And I think the same is true in any profession. So um, the, the cool, to separate the Kool-Aid from the relationships and to remember, I am still in touch with friends and colleagues um, in academia. Um, I read Steve's Facebook posts on a regular basis, for example. Um, and I learn from them, and I value them, and I, there are any number of people from the journey, and there are people that I call in a professional capacity um, quite frequently, 
even though I'm not working in a traditional academic institution on a tenure track path. So for people who are thinking about these choices and are looking at the context within which they operate, it can be helpful, I think, both to separate the, the career piece from the relationships and social infrastructure piece, and then realize that Yes, there is a, you're, you're always, when you change communities, it has a, it changes. But those relationships, those pieces, if you're staying in the same community, particularly geographically, um, you're not giving everything up. You're not, you're not denying who you are if you go into another profession. You're simply refracting it, reflecting it, making a change, and then, and then, and then moving forward. But um, I would stress this sort of, taking a look at what is keeping someone in an institution and recognizing that it may or may not have anything to do with the actual career path day job and may have to do with a lot of the other pieces that go with being in academia. All right, well, it looks like we don't have any other questions. Uh, does anybody up at the panel table have any final thoughts? Last call. Uh, I just want to solicit all of you as audience members for your suggestions and ideas about how the AER can help uh, people think more critically about uh, work outside the academy in the future and how we can help people in your position more broadly, um, whether it be in terms of employment services, whether it's in terms of different sorts of member services that we could offer to people who are who are outside the academy, whether it's utilizing people who are in positions outside the academy to enact uh, a better public understanding of religion. We want to develop um, better programs for people who are not in that traditional teaching position because we know what those employment statistics look like we know what that means for our membership, and we know that we need to think about the future and change. Um, so I would love to hear any of your comments about that. And we know that religious studies matters outside the academy. Absolutely. I just want to throw that out there. Um, so thank you, everybody, for coming. I think we've got about another half an hour in the room. So if you want to stick around and chat with us, that would be great. We're all here. Um, please get our cards. Find us on LinkedIn. If you don't have a LinkedIn profile yet, it's a good place to start networking. Um, So the three o'clock session is here in the convention center on the third floor, mm -hmm. and we're going to have a panel of faculty, including Steve Prothro, to talk about um, what can faculty do to better help prepare their scholars, and also what can institutions and the AAR be doing to help faculty. So please join us. Uh, and then the reception is at eight o'clock in the bar. The bar at the Marriott River Center. <laughs> so thank you very much for joining us.